For those of you who do not know me, my name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Third Street Community Church, and it is my honor and privilege to bring to you this morning the Word of God. We have made it to November. I don't know if you've noticed, but November means a couple changes. Specifically in here, it means the heat's on. Y'all remember just like a couple months ago when we were like sweating, just like sitting here with each other, and now, now y'all got your jackets on. Remember those days? We made it to November. November means a lot of things to a lot of people. In particular, in my house, it means one consistent argument reigns dominant, and that is when is it appropriate to start listening to Christmas music, putting up Christmas decorations, making Christmas cookies, watching Christmas movies, etc., 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 etc. If you are a member of my house who's not named Corey, the answer to that question was August. But for me, eh, whatever. I'm not like a Scrooge necessarily. I just don't really like, it's just not for me. Like all the, all the holiday hoopla, like I'm, I'm liable to be, to be your grandpa that tells you about how like this is, this is a man-made holiday and you know, we've commercialized it and blah, 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 more so than I am to tell you about how joyful I am to share in Christmas. I'm just being, I'm just keeping it real. I'm just being all the way real. Um, really the only thing out of all of the, the, the obligations, other than the Christmas shop, the Christmas shop is crazy dope. Outside of that, the only thing that I really get into uh, about Christmas is uh, this Third Street Christmas party we have every year with our staff and park leaders. Um, one of the things that we chose to do a few years back uh, was to start, instead of doing like a gift exchange, we did a white elephant gift exchange. Has anybody ever done a white elephant gift exchange? All right, so for those of you who don't know, white elephant gift exchange is like you just, you just put a bunch of random crap in a pile. I use that word intentionally. Like you just, you just pick something in your house that you don't want anymore, and you put it in a pile as a gift, and somebody is going to end up with it. But there are a few like white elephant Christmas gift gems, right? Like something that somebody puts in there as a joke, but then somebody else thinks is really funny. So then it starts this game of like, I'm going to steal that. No, I'm going to steal that back from you. No, I'm going to do all this. You got to put rules in place and it gets heated and wild. Well, a couple years ago, uh, my wife decided to start this trend in our white elephant gift exchange um, by putting a very embarrassing picture of me from childhood in the gift exchange. And that turned into the gem of the white elephant exchange. Everybody was trying to steal that picture. I actually believe Deshaun has it currently. Um, But then that happening that year and everybody having a great laugh at me and at my expense and my shameful childhood, that started a trend of the following year, people decided to step that up. So now circulating, it was not only the school picture type display of me in an embarrassing childhood outfit. Um, There was also uh, one individual who shall remain nameless, um, but she's on stage, um, who, who found a baby picture of me, of my big, abnormally size headed self on a rocking horse. 
You guys ever have like a rocking horse before? So I was in an outfit and I was on a rocking horse and I had a really big head. And she turned that picture into a snow globe that said, watch me whip, watch me nay, nay. Just yesterday, just yesterday, my wife gets all excited about a package that arrived at our house and she goes, guess what we just got? It's like, what did we get? And she can't even, she can't even hold it in. Like, she's terrible at secrets. She can't even, like, she's just bursting with joy. And she, like, rips this package open like she's freaking Superman and then holds up. And I can't tell you what it is. I, I refuse to tell you what it is. But something else that is just adding to this incredible white elephant gift exchange that is completely humiliating, shameful, and embarrassing to me and to me alone. Everybody else is just having a great time. But today I have great joy because based on the text that we're going to get into today, I believe that God will deal very harshly with them. You'll see what I'm talking about. If you haven't been with us, let me catch you up. We're in this series called Are You Just? We're going through the book of Habakkuk, and we're talking about Habakkuk's struggle of, of, of finding justification or finding uh, evidence that God is just and that God is good in such an incredibly hard time. The book starts with this back and forth exchange between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk's like, God, I can't take it anymore. There's injustice everywhere. Violence all over the streets. All I see is death. I no longer put any hope in our court systems because the justice system just lets me down continually. God, I'm really finding a hard time to believe finding it to be a hard time to believe that you are the just God you say you are. I'm finding it hard to believe that you're in control. As a matter of fact, I'm crying out to you right now to ask you, when are you going to do something about this? There's a bit of a back and forth exchange, and that's what we talked about for the first two weeks. Last week, we got into a, to, to the specific list of judgments that God holds against Babylon, the opposing, oppressing nation. Last week, we talked about the fact that God despises, despises systemic oppression. And God absolutely hates this narrative that I've got to get mine, even if it is at the expense of my neighbor. This morning, we continue with this list of grievances. So if you would, and you have your physical Bible with you, I would ask you to join me in the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be specifically in chapter two. We're only going three verses today. So if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. Just catch it up here on the screen. This is Habakkuk chapter two. We're just reading five through 17 today. And it says this. This is God continuing. He says, what sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk. You force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But soon, it will be your turn to be disgraced. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment 
and all your glory will be turned to shame. You cut down the forest of Lebanon. Now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. Babylon is this big, powerful, threatening, impending nation that, is, that are taking people into enslavement. Those who they choose can still feed their cause, right? The rest of them will just be killed. But to those that they want to play with or they perceive they can be used, we'll go ahead and take them captive, forcing them to assimilate to their culture, giving them new names, no longer allowing them to hold on to their heritage, so on, so on, and so on. The grievance that God brings up in this instance is he's like, oh, 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 I see what you're doing too. You're not just imploring unjust economic situations. You're not just keeping them in this one particular sociological uh, uh, cast, but, but you're also playing with them too, aren't you? He says, yeah, I see what you're doing out here. You, you are intentionally introducing to them some sort of intoxicant, something that is going to get them drunk. Maybe you're even billing, billing it to them as like, I see your pain. This must suck for you. How about, how, about, how about something to help you cope? How about you do this so, so that way at least momentarily you can be alleviated of the pain that, that our people are inflicting upon yours? but they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. If they were, they would offer some different solution, right? Instead, they're doing it because when people get drunk, they get loose. And when people get loose, they get stupid. And when people get stupid, other people laugh. You know that... Never mind. We're not going to do that today. Here's the thing. They're intentionally, they're intentionally getting people drunk, intentionally introducing things to people in order to expose them. They're going all out with expose culture. I will put you on blast quick. We're all going to have a nice laugh. And shame an entire people. Degrade an entire people. Babylon seeks specifically to degrade their neighbor in order to glorify themselves. In order to make themselves feel better. In order to make themselves look better. Because believe it or not, their murder and mass takeover wasn't quite doing it for them. And this enrages God. God comes back to them. He says, go ahead, because soon enough, it's going to be your turn. Soon enough, it will be your turn. You laugh as my people continue to drink from your cup of shame, but soon you will drink from my cup, and my cup is judgment. I will deal with you, and, and allow me to remind you that I know the full extent of what you're, what you're doing. He's careful to, 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 to uh, provide insight that I also know what you're doing to my environment. 
Yeah, I see all those forests that you're, that you're wrecking so you can build your big houses. I see that. He's sure to include, I see what you're doing to the animals that I created. I'm going to deal with that too. And did I not mention, this is a pretty consistent theme, did I not mention all the blood that's on your hands? Yeah, I'm going to deal with all of this, but there's one thing in particular I believe that God has, that has God especially irritated in this situation. And that is the shame that Babylon is bringing on entire people. They're doing things to intentionally shame and degrade people. People that God created. People that God meant good things for. And they're doing these things on purpose to make other people look bad so that they themselves can look better. And when we look through the Old Testament, when we look throughout all of Scripture, but what we're going to particularly get into is the Old Testament today, God has quite the history of dealing with shame. This brings me to point number one. We got three and then I'm out your way. Point one. God never intended shame. It is against the design of God to feel and experience shame. In the beginning, God created everything. And when we see in creation is God gets done with a whole set and he's like, that's good. God's going to come over here and he's going to create something else and it's going to work intricately together and, and live together harmoniously. He's going to step back and be like, that's good. God's going to come over here on a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth day. He's going to round a whole bunch of stuff up. He's going to set some stuff over here. He's going to bring some stuff out from over here. He's going to let living creatures come around the land. He's going to let vegetation sprout. He's going to let all of this stuff have a perfect order and a perfect system. But, oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. And he's going to step back and he's going to be like, uh, that's good. At the pinnacle creation, he's going to create man and woman to be together. He's going to create them to, 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 to uh, be ordained and to reside over the land. And he is going to, to allow humanity to reflect his image. He says, I'm going to make you to look like us. I'm going to make you to look like me. It's going to be because the way that they say humanity, that anyone and everyone knows, even the animals will acknowledge that's what God is like. Everything is beautiful. Everything is good. Everything has perfect order. That's the way we were created to be. We were created in the image of an almighty God, not to suffer in this world, but to reflect his strength, to reflect his creativity, to reflect his passion, to reflect his love. That's what we were made for. But of course, we see an enemy introduced to the story who's really, really good at wordplay. He's really, really good at like taking some true words and just by changing the order of them or even just like questioning and allowing doubt to creep into the minds of man and woman, he, he, he's, he's leading man and woman astray. I mean, is it really going to go down like that? 
did he really say this or did he say this? Because really, it sounds the same. And of course, like, there's no way you'll die. That's, that's not what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. He twists some truth. He says, you're going to be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know the world of good and evil. But if you do this, you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. God never intended for us to know because God never intended for us to be exposed to that. Because here's what happens. We become exposed, we become susceptible to sin and evil. Genesis 3, 7 says, at that moment, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. God never intended for that to be introduced to humanity. God never intended for us to feel shame. It was by indulging in the enemy's tactics. It was by being introduced to sin that the first thing we see as a manifestation of that is shame. It says suddenly their eyes were opened and they felt shame. What did they feel shame of? God made them. God made them beautiful. God made them to look like him. What are they ashamed of? But they felt shame. And this progresses, right? They're now exposed to a whole world that says, you're naked. You're ugly. You're weak. You're untrustworthy. Man, God gave you one job. You're unwelcome. We've got a whole world that screams this at them every day. And so what do we do? We cover up. We find ways to cover ourselves. When they hear God moving in the garden, they find a way to hide. And when hiding doesn't work, we run. And when we realize that we're running from God and he's like omnipresent, so it don't really matter which path we choose, he's already over there, we lie. We lie. No, 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 I was just getting a workout, just some cardio, Jesus. Like, I was just, man, I was just, huh, like, and over here, and my time's actually getting a lot better, but um, no, but what had happened was, and then, but it was Eve's fault, bro. I've been trying to tell her, like, it was Eve's fault. We lie. We lie. We now live into the sin we desire. We're now subject to both righteous and sinful judgment. And God just looks and he says, this is not what I had for you. This is not what I had for you. This is not what I had wanted for you. Where have you accepted shame in your own life right now? Where have you felt embarrassed? Maybe so much shame or so embarrassed that, that it's caused you to, to, to come up with this grand cover-up. 
oh no, I'm gonna make sure I'm not exposed. I'm gonna make sure nobody sees this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I'm cool. I'm gonna cover this up. Maybe you're just hiding in general. It's causing you to run, run from things that you don't want anyone knowing about you, run to things that you think people will think are more acceptable, but it's all the same. It's causing you to lie. Lie about who you really are. Lie about what you're up to. Lie about who you've been with. What's the shame you keep hoping that nobody sees or calls out? Do you have it in your head? Here's what I need you to hear. If you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. God did not give that to you. God did not give that to you. God does not want that for you. God wants to squash that. God did not give that, give that to you. And as a matter of fact, God despises it. In Genesis 9, we read another story of shame. There's our hero, Noah, right? Everybody loves Noah. Noah and the ark. Our kids might be singing about it right now, coloring little pages. The Lord brought a flood. Noah, in faith, built a boat. Two of every kind of animal. All that must have been a huge boat. They float to safety, right? And then Noah, as him and his sons and his family are rebuilding society, verse 20 says, Noah began cultivating the ground. Check this out. He planted a vineyard. Now, if you go to John 15, there's like crazy, like, there's like crazy, like biblical intertextuality there. There's some crazy, like, play on words there. There's actually a lot of, like, really beautiful things about the fact that Noah planted a vineyard. But I want to be a little tongue in cheek and a little facetious to break a little bit of the tension right now. Like, my man Noah was trying to get crunk. He planted a vineyard. He's making grapes. My dude's trying to do what? Some, he drank some wine that he made. He's trying to make some wine. Hey, man, this flood thing's terrible. Let's drink. It says one day he drank some wine that he made and he became drunk. Got a little too loose. Now he's lying naked in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw this, saw that his father was naked. And he went outside and told his brothers, hey, bro. Go in there and look at dad, dude. This man is foolish, bro. Like, I'm saying, like, you know how that wine he was drinking? He must have had, hey, bro, just go look at him, dude. Just go look at dad. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and they backed into the tent to cover their father. And as they did this, they looked the other way so they wouldn't see him naked. And when Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. And so this is what he does. Verse 25, he curses Canaan. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of his servants, lowest of servants to his relatives. Curse Canaan. And God allows it. Noah drinks too much. One of his sons wants to expose his shame. The other two are polite about it. And God deals with the one who wanted to expose the shame very harshly. God cannot stand that stuff like this is in existence. 
It's a little bit of flashback to like, man, I didn't want shame for you. I'm sick that this is still around. And now look at it. Now we got kids laughing at their dads. So you know what? Let me deal with this. I can't stand that this is in existence and it will not be tolerated. God is is communicating a zero tolerance for the existence of shame. Point two, God despises shame. It might seem elementary, but this is actually like a profound point we need to get through. God despises shame. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. We see it often in the person of Jesus. We see Jesus encounter, we read a couple weeks ago, the story of a woman at the well whose shame drove her out of her community, whose shame caused her to go to the well to catch a drink at noon when it's really hot and not nobody else will be there whose shame has caused her to not even associate with the rest of her town. And Jesus acknowledges, yeah, you've been tripping lately. I know what you're out here doing, five husbands, this last dude, he not even your husband. Like, we all know what's going on. I know what's going on. But for you, but for you, I've got water. I've got living water. We see it. We see it in the woman caught in adultery. Her shame has brought her drug out by her hair in front of the whole community, stuck in the middle of a whole bunch of men who want to sit and throw rocks at her until she's not breathing no more because of the shameful things that she's involved in. And then Jesus steps up. Hold up a second. Y'all free of sin? Y'all ain't do nothing? Chad, what about you? Breakfast? You do something this morning at breakfast I need to know about? Hmm? Billy, you man? What about you, man? Hmm? You're free from sin too, huh? Hmm, bet. Go ahead. Whichever one of you free from sin, go ahead, throw a rock. Go ahead. And everybody walks away. A thankful woman looks up at Jesus and he's like, look, I know you're guilty. This whole community knows you're guilty. I know what's been going on, but there's grace for you. Go, stop tripping. You ever notice Jesus' ability to rebuke a person without talking crap about them? You ever see Jesus with the Pharisees? Man, they got so much all twisted. They were holding so much against people, but not once did he say, You guys are ugly. You guys are just terrible individuals, and you're going straight to hell. Never. He's quick to rebuke the sin without degrading another image bearer. You can hate the sin, but what we're not going to do is denigrate my people. And for Babylon, they're just out here like they're living world star thousands of years before it's even before it's even in existence. Man, they're out here exposing everything. They're getting all sorts of likes and shares on it. They're out here shamelessly posting it, shamelessly putting stuff out there for what to laugh at. Say, oh, you're going to treat my people like that. Oh, that's what we're going to do. Well, then God will expose your wickedness. 
Don't laugh at the plank in their eyes when you've got the trees of Lebanon in yours. Because God doesn't see the people they're denigrating, shaming, or killing the way that Babylon sees them. Where is it that you need to separate the shame from the person that you're accusing? Where do you need to separate the shame from the person? You can hate what somebody is doing, but we still must view the person as an image bearer, as somebody who God created. Maybe there's somebody in your life that like, I'm not even trying to talk to you about politics. Or maybe it's the way you interact with people about politics in general. Like, have you ever noticed that for some reason, we as people are like completely incapable of separating somebody's views from their character? Like we, like we have to not only attack what they think, but we also have to call them an idiot. Like we just can't, like we can't find a way to be, to be like, I could not more strongly disagree with you and we, want, we can't fall just short of being like, and you're such a... You ever get mad at the way somebody in your life is acting out? And you're sitting there processing and you're talking about, I just can't understand what would cause them to make such a decision. I can't understand how they're out here. Oh, you didn't know? Oh, pull up a chair. Let me tell you what this man is out here doing. Come here, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I know. Can you believe it? There's such a this. There's such a that. Only a person who's really like this would do such a... Why? You don't think that person already feels shame? We got to stay away from that. Because as we just saw, God deals pretty harshly with that. Maybe the shame that needs separated is within yourself. Maybe you've developed an inability to separate your own shame from your character, from how God sees you. man, these are all the ways that I screwed up. These are all the ways that people have seen me screw up. God must hate me. Man, God must think I'm, because I just been out, man. God doesn't think that. God doesn't think that. As a matter of fact, let me go ahead and jump to my third point, because God came to set you free from that. God frees us from the shame we experience. When you go back to Genesis 3, in the whole little situation where Adam and Eve had themselves, and they slipped up, and now they feel shame, and they feel naked, and God's like, who told you that you were naked? I never meant for you to think this way. I never meant for you to be exposed to these elements. I, I only wanted to protect you. And even in their shame, even with them feeling the way that they were feeling, 
Even in the fact that Adam and Eve single-handedly may have just screwed up, not definitely just screwed up humanity for the rest of us for a really long time. I mean, the weight of what they just messed up is pretty significant. If I were God, I'm smacking them out of existence. Like, it's just over with, right? But God looks at them and he makes clothing for them. He covers them. I'm so mad at you. I'm so upset that you think this. I'm so upset that you feel this. I just, I can't believe what's going on, but God covers it. I see you suffering. I'm going to cover it. Here's protection for you as you go forward. In the New Testament, what we're going to find is God sends a covering once and for all. Because all throughout the Old Testament, it's just a continuation of this problem getting worse, right? It's a continuation of this problem getting worse. More shame is introduced. More problems. More faithlessness. We just get further and further and further away. God says, I will introduce something once and for all. God brings Jesus Jesus came to bring freedom from our shame. But to bring freedom from these things, he had to walk through these things. Hebrews 12, 2, the, the latter half says, because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus had to walk through a whole lot of shame to get to the other side. I want you to think about this. When Jesus was being wrongfully and unjustly accused before a council that shouldn't have even been meeting when it was meeting, where were his friends at? Where were his boys? Where was Peter at? I mean, they were like, uh, where were they at? You don't think Jesus felt shame by his friends not being around anymore? What about the fact that all these people are there to accuse him of a whole bunch of things that he didn't even do? What about the fact that all these people think so poorly of him that they would rather just him die? You ever think so poorly of somebody that you just want them to die? Yeah, that's pretty extravagant. They saw, thought so ill of Jesus that they were like, it'd be better if he just wasn't even here. What about when Jesus is carrying the cross and all these people are just yelling terrible things at him, spitting on him, throwing things on him, mocking him while he's up there suffering and dying for them, by the way. You don't think Jesus felt shame then? What about the fact that for, for, for a long period of time, he was stripped of all of his clothing and while he was completely naked, they beat him. They exposed, quite literally, bones and blood from his body. They ripped Jesus to shreds. And then, publicly, naked, beating, bleeding, humiliated, throw him up on a tree. You don't think he felt shame in that moment? Jesus had nothing left. And Jesus despised 
every second of it. But he beat it. He beat it. He beat it. How? By getting up three days later. Shame put him six feet under. But three days later, he was standing pretty tall and pretty strong. He beat it. Oh, but he had to go through. How did he make it? For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was ahead of him. How do I deal with this shame, pastor? I hear you and you're poking a whole bunch of holes in my heart and I'm getting really irritated. I'm starting to really feel it. I got a little lump in my throat and I'm getting really emotional about it. How do you want me to deal with it? What's supposed to get me through? For the joy that awaits you. What got Jesus through the cross, we know he didn't want to go. We know he's like, look, dad, look, I'm saying if there's another way we can do this, just go ahead and let me do that. But if not, I'll go through it. And what gets him through is the promise that was waiting for him. The promise that God says, you are the true son of God. You are my child. The promise that he says, I, God, will never leave one of my sons or daughters abandoned. Not ever. What gets him through is the power of God's presence within him. What gets him through all of these people saying horrible things and him being allowed to have the perspective of forgive them because they don't know what they're doing is the power of God's presence within him. What gets him up from that grave is the power of God's presence within him. What gets Jesus through the shame is the place that was waiting for him. God had been promising for thousands of years, you're gonna sit on this throne. There's one right here, right hand. It's beautiful, it's purple, it's wonderful, it's right next to me and it'll be there for eternity and whoever sits in this throne is gonna reign over an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that won't end, a kingdom where all its people are happy and this seat right here is for you, Jesus. That's what gets him through. We need have nothing to do with shame because the sacrifice of Christ has allowed there to be joy awaiting us. There is joy on the other side. There is a promise that says in Christ, we are all sons and daughters through faith. There is a promise that God is a loving father who wipes away every ounce of shame and guilt. For us, there is power. Jesus says, don't worry, I'm not abandoning you either. Me and God, see, we too much alike. You want to know what he's like? Look at me. And what I'm going to tell you is I'm not going to leave here, leave you here abandoned. I'm sending for you an advocate. The spirit will live within us. There is power to do even greater things than we're even imagining or allowing ourselves to imagine right now. You want to see the city change? It's already within you. You want to see your circumstance changed? It's already within you. You want to see the chains that your family's been wrestling with for generations broken? The power is already within you. And lastly, there's a place. There's a place. Praise God in heaven. That this place right here with all this injustice right here, with all this mess right here going on, this is not where we lie forever. 
We praise God that there's a place that we go to where there is no shame, there is no injustice, there is no murder, there is no sorrow, there are no tears. Where we're going is we get to go be a part of the kingdom that looks exactly like what God had intended in Genesis 1 and 2. That's where we're going. How do we get through for the joy that awaits? Where do you need God to help you beat shame? And how can this community of believers come alongside of you to do it?